Women form a disproportionately large share of the world's unbanked population. According to the World Bank, 980 million women do not have access to a bank account. They make up nearly 60% of the unbanked adults in China, India, and even higher share in Turkey. Gender inequalities in employment and earnings mean that women have low incomes, making them less able to open accounts in formal financial institutions. Thus, women cannot seek loans from the formal financial sector. To achieve gender equality, the international community must identify new forms of the financial services to serve women in the developing world. For the International Labour Organization, only with equal access to the full range of needs-based financial services, which includes savings, credit, insurance, payments, and financial education, do women stand a chance of social and economic empowerment. audience greetings we're happy to have you listening to the women pursuing change podcast our conversation today will be around financial inclusion and how it relates to the gender equality the pursuit is here to support women fighting for their own rights and make the world just a place for both men and women i'm jean from malawi and listen to the podcast which is hosted by Miriam from tunisia and eduardo from brazil thank you so much jean hello everyone I'm Miriam and I will have the honor to introduce our guests. Today we invited Eileen Rodriguez and Linus Druli. To learn more about our initiative, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pursuit Convo. Now, let's get started with our episode 7. So Eileen, you are a researcher and policy analyst with experience in financial inclusion, gender and poverty alleviation through microfinance in Latin America. Before we start our conversation, can you share with us a little bit about your background growing up in Argentina? Argentina is a very Latin American country, there are a lot of inequality. So when you're a child and you grow up there, inequality is part of the status quo, right? When my family and I moved to Spain, there wasn't so much inequality. And that's one of the things that impressed me most. I think the contrast made me realize that um, things can be different and that there is no need for inequality. So because of that, I, I studied law. And when I finished my career, I started working in a public bank. And working for this bank, I have been involved in providing loans and providing credit to people that have been very affected by the financial crisis. Um, so there is where I understand that the financial sector can be a powerful tool to improve the well-being of people. In your own words, what is financial inclusion and why is this topic important to achieve gender equality from your point of view? Sure. So when we talk about financial inclusion, basically we mean we refer to three conditions. First is access to financial services, formal financial services. The second is usage of this product. And the third is quality. So when we talk about financial inclusion, we must think of, in this case, women that have access, right, to these formal financial services, that they use their bank accounts. It's not only that they have accounts, they must use it. And the product available for them must be adequate understanding that products must be tailored to their needs, to the specific needs. 
So when we have all these three conditions, access, usage, and quality, is when we talk about financial inclusion. So in general, financial inclusion helps families to improve their income and let's say smooth consumption, right? Um, they can ask for credit and increase capital to invest. They can have savings. This is particularly important for women for their retirement. Uh, they can invest in children's education, in housing. So basically financial inclusion improve the well-being of people. I loved your last sentence. Financial inclusion is a way to improve the life of people. And that's why I'm going to give the word to Ms. Lina to represent herself and tell us what, in her own word, financial inclusion means and why it's so important to achieve gender equality. Thank you, uh, Mary. Firstly, I, I would like to quickly explain the perspective that I come from from the financial inclusion um, per and gender equality perspective. My side was one of a practitioner. I am a social entrepreneur who was working uh, daily with uh, refugee women. And we were uh, as an employment uh, providing opportunity. And in the course of providing them employment, I realized that it was not just an hourly job that they needed, but they needed a safe place to come to as a community to discuss about um, even topics such as finance in a completely new and different environment and understand their rights and needs in, in a new country. And in the course of, of working with these women, when it came time to write down the contract or go forward with the payment process, repeatedly I know I would say, okay, can you please share your bank account with me so I can um, do the electronic transfer? Oh, what's an electronic transfer? They would tell me, um, I don't have a bank account. Can you send the money to my husband's bank account? Because he's the only one in the family who has one. So in finding myself having to repeatedly, you know, take a step back and understand, okay, what I thought the community needed and what really was, um, there was a massive gap in, in from a practical perspective. And so that's, that's where I come from um, as, a, as a social entrepreneur. And on the other side, I also worked at the World Bank on financial inclusion projects, really large scale, collaborating with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, from a banking the unbanked perspective and um, and so that's just what I want to briefly explain where I come from it I really see it as of course a widespread um, large solution problem and a matching solution like we did in the World Bank but I also see it as a case by case how do we get this specific person with this specific problems to adopt let's almost a lifestyle of being financially included and in that case receive gender parity because they build up credit through their own bank account and then they're able to take a credit and start their own business and allows better decision making allows in a way more independence of thought. What we found with the women that we worked with, it was very much a community-minded perspective. Um, this was very helpful, Lena and Eileen, also to explaining what financial inclusion is and how important it is for, you know, gender equality and for women's empowerment also, and for thinking of how, you know, women can become more and more independent to make their own choices. Now, both of you have very practical experiences, and I was wondering if you could tell us more about 
what do you think are the most um, successful solutions for tackling financial inclusion for women in your work? Well, there are a lot of things that uh, Lina suggested before. And, and one of the things I want to highlight is the, the need for financial education and digital financial education. That's very, very important because I think uh, technology is a great ally uh, for financial inclusion in women. So considering that, one of the solutions that I think that I work with was the banking correspondent channel. Banking correspondent channel is not a product, as the name says, it is a channel. It means that, so for example, grocery stores or gas stations, they have an electronic device that allows people to make payments. But this is very convenient because, as we said before, it can be anywhere. You don't need a bank or um, a branch, you don't need an ATM, you just need one place that it has this electronic device that can be a grocery store. So that provides access and it also provides usage. For example, now with the pandemic, practically all governments are providing payment relief through cash transfers. So women that are not in, or they are in remote areas can go to this grocery store uh, they have access to this bank account that governments open for them, and they can uh, use the bank account thanks to the payment relief. From what I saw as well that's important is to have the right mechanisms and education in place to enable that secondary action of even wanting to open a bank account, of wanting to actively use it, of seeing the use for it, of advocating it as their right in their homes in, in certain situations. And for example, through the organization, uh, through the social enterprise that I run, we created, a, let's say, almost a pre-financial literacy course where we compiled an, a mobile-based program um, where women, um, based off of all the questions that we were asked by, by women, why do I need a bank account? What's checking? Really the basics and understanding. And so now as an incentive, this type of course was given internally to our employees. Um, it was given for free. It's open source and free for all organizations to use. And in many cases, uh, we saw that NGOs and partners were saying, oh, if you complete this course, you will get, I don't know, this gift card. Um, and once they had that mechanism and, and a, a group conversation, there was so much energy and there was the right, let's say, mindset and energy and even push to say, okay, let's go to the bank together to open our account. But also built, let's say, a mindset of the way of going out of this hand to mouth lifestyle but i really see as a really key important piece this incentivizing and from let's say a mental emotional psychological perspective why financial is so important the main thing we can see is a more equal society in the case of financial inclusion of women we have seen that when we invest in women that investment has a direct impact on children because promote or their mothers are very worried about their children's education and they want they have a better life so um, there are many studies that prove 
that when you invest in a, in a mother or in a woman, you will have a direct benefit in the whole society. What, what do you think governments and maybe even the private sector should do to become advocates for this cause? Like, is there something missing or from your experience? Um, yes. <laughs> I mean, as a, as a policy analyst, I think the go government has a lot. They play a decisive role in, in financial inclusion. So I would say the first thing we need to do is to bring women to formal financial sectors, right? So banks or financial providers must design products tailored to women's need and according with their behaviors, preferences, that's for sure. Uh, and it's something that financial providers can increase or use through technology, as we also mentioned it. But in order to do all that, in order to let financial providers to reach people and women, the law or regulation must enable private uh, organizations to do that. So right now what I see and from my professional experience is that laws and, and policies were designed thinking on the traditional market And they are, of course, for logical reasons, they are very prudential. In other words, they're very restrictive. And that doesn't work for low-income people, right? So if you need to open a bank account or you need to ask for a credit, usually banks will ask you a lot of administrative things that low-income people usually don't have. We need more regulation thinking on the needs of, of these people and their circumstances and their way of living. That means that we need prudential regulation, of course, but they must be flexible. So from the government perspective, I completely agree with Island the, fle the flexibility point. And, and I have a couple points on that. Firstly, flexibility in the documentation and timeline required to even open a bank account. Because if we truly want to bank the unbanked from every perspective, Well, we have to keep in, into account that many people don't have a birth certificate because they were born in a conflict situation. And so the, the hospital they were born in did not officially issue them a birth certificate. And they live their whole lives in um, in a semi-anonymous state. And so if they go to the bank and suddenly they're asked for a passport, a social um, security number, whatever that equivalent might be in their country, if they're asked for documentation that they do not have, well, by default, we cannot formally include them international banking systems. So I, I really think the government and the private sector as banks need to work together, together with international development organizations and, and other nonprofits and see, okay, how much flexibility can we offer to, um, to this group of people? Of course, without laxing the laws, allowing other things to happen. There's a reason why banking systems are so strict and require so much information and it is to prevent of course, money laundering and other illegal illicit activity. But somehow we have to juggle this with the fact that almost a billion women remain unbanked. And there's a large population of men as well. I believe it's the equivalent of another 50, 60% of that 980. So I think that's very important. Um, I think it's important to have flexibility in terms of last mile solutions, because realistically, if you live in a remote rural area, it is going to cost you a whole day of work and a whole day of lost income to be able to go three hours by bus 
or by foot to the nearest town where you there is a formal bank account that you can open a deposit your money and come back that's a whole day of lost income in most situations that is not financially feasible what do you think like some experiences countries or even big groups that financial inclusion actually made an impact on them on their realities economy etc Latin America experienced a huge increase in financial inclusion, mainly in South America and also in Mexico. Particularly, Lina was mentioning before, right? Technology innovations. And these countries improve Colombia, Brazil, and Peru. I like the, the three ones that I'm thinking right now. They improve financial inclusion thanks to banking correspondence, as also Lina was mentioning before, like going to convenient local stores and and do some payments and banking tra transactions, that allows a lot of people to get in the formal financial sector, Colombia, Chile, Brazil. Uruguay is another country that also increased their financial inclusion a lot by government initiatives. For example, also in Brazil, which I think Brazil is one of the pioneers, um, the governments start to provide uh, payment through conditional transfer, digital conditional transfer, instead of the usual cash disbursement. And again, that this because it's very convenient and it because it saves time and it doesn't require people to present a lot of documents or guarantees or assets because they are flexible. Uh, I think there's so many fascinating examples out there. We worked a bit with M-Pesa um, in, in Kenya, and um, I think M-Pesa has been revolutionary in, in many cases in terms of enabling um, financial inclusion and, and microfinancing for millions of people. <laughs> and it was very interesting case study to see how well it was uptaken in Kenya and then expanded DRC, Mozambique, Ghana, um, other parts of the African continent, but then failed to have that same uptake in countries uh, such as Albania, where I'm from originally, and Romania. And so I really think it's important in the case of, of financial inclusion and innovation is also understanding the local country context. Why did this incredibly successful model, which has enabled a lot of people for the first time sometimes in their lives, be able to actually do any form of digital money transfer or safeguarding of their savings and yet failed in, in other country contexts? So I caution always against saying, okay, this model always works and this other one doesn't always work because the reason, one of the reasons why M-Pesa failed in Albania was not that all of a sudden the technology didn't work. No, there was a low desire from that specific context to use those services. And so the incentives and the emotional side of what financial literacy means did not work as well. And I really think that the, and, and the research backs this um, up, is that in, in many cases, we're not even lacking the innovations, we're not lacking the resources or tools. What we're lacking is the key to unlocking what that specific community needs to have as an incentive 
to become financially included and to remain as such. If there's a very low fee and everyone is saying, okay, sign up for this awesome new debit card that you can open up at your local convenience store, it's free. Okay, everyone signs up. And then six months later, they notice that half of their savings are gone because the fees are so high. Well, the security of having my savings in a place that is not, let's say, under my mattress or in a place where it can be stolen, well, that safety is not enough for me to give off half of my savings. And so I'm going to pull out from that service. But in other cases, maybe I'm willing to give up half of my savings because I know that all of it can be gone tomorrow if I keep it in an unsecure location. So I, I really think it has to be almost in a way hyper-local. I know we're all obsessed about scale and making sure that everyone gets everything in, in both international development and from a private sector perspective. But as we've seen, it doesn't work. And so I really think taking into account the hyper-local context and who you're talking to and what their specific needs are as a human being, and then translating that into something technical and giving them the incentives uh, to, to remain banked is incredibly important. Perhaps the last remark I think it is important to say um, is related with sex disaggregated data collection. I think in general, uh, practitioners and, and people that work in multilateral organizations and governments, we we are experiencing the need of more data, quality data, and especially sex disaggregated data. And the reason of that is because uh, in general, data quality is not always as desirable <laughs> or it doesn't provide all the information we need to reach people. But if governments increase their efforts in collecting sex disaggregated data, we will be able to understand the needs and behaviors related to the access and usage of, of financial services. And um, with data, we were also able to identify where are the constraints for women in our accessing um, financial inclusion. Is it a problem in the law? Is it because of social norms or gender stereotypes? This is particularly uh, important for design interventions, effective interventions. And the other interesting thing is that when we have sex disaggregated data, we can also identify differences among specific groups of women. We can see if there are differences driven by race, ethnicity, class, or even marital status. I think I'll leave with the point on the importance of, of cross-sector collaboration. I, where I've seen the most effective solutions designed is when there was a seat at the table on behalf of the government, which is the regulatory body that sets the minimum standards needed, if you can even open an account and, and what that means. The private sector who's providing the service, private sector at large who might be showing interesting different innovations, uh, as well as the actual user, the people that we are trying to get banked. And, and under, Alan said something very interesting about the different nuance that, that women have. All women are not the same and each of them have very different. So being able to, to come together and actually provide a solution from the bottom up that responds to everyone's needs rather than from the top down and understanding later that that was a big flop because that can in the long run create community distrust and less 
desire to try new um, solutions. Well, girls, thank you very much for joining us today. I think it was our honor to have both of you here. So thank you so much. Thank you.